This is the Business of Apps podcast, bringing you actionable insights from the leaders of the global app industry and the world's fastest growing apps. You can find more app news, data and analysis over at businessofapps.com. Welcome to the Business of Apps podcast. On this show, we invite app industry professionals to cover various topics. We promise to do our best to keep it both insightful but brief. On this episode, we have Martin McMillan, CEO and founder of Poland VC. Martin, welcome to the BSFF's podcast. Thanks very much for having me on the show. It's great to be here. Great. Thank you for coming. So first of all, this is the first episode we're recording this year. So I just want to say welcome to 2021, yet another turbulent year in our life. I do hope it's going to be a better year for all of us. So last year, during the course of almost 50 episodes of this podcast, one topic was left out, money. So today we will be filling that gap, but not in the way you may think. It's not specifically about making money by selling apps, but dealing with financial questions to fund app projects and grow your app business. So um, first of all, um, Martin, please tell us about yourself. How did you get into app business funding? So it's an interesting one. So I actually, our business at Poland actually came from a problem that I had firsthand as an app developer. So I'd spend about two years of my life doing a music remixing app where we licensed multi-track recordings from record labels. We built a really simple kind of fun gameplay style app that allowed you to automatically to, to very simply deconstruct and reconstruct the music and then layer gesture effects over the top with your fingers. So it took about a year to do the licensing side of it. Eventually we got going with, with a radio station partner here in the UK. And then very quickly within about the first month of that business, we ran up against the problem that, that we solved as, as Pollen, which is you know, the app developers facing the payment delays. In our case, we didn't have any ad monetization. It was all in-app purchase monetization and the payment delay of you know, up to 60 plus days on the IAP payouts was a real issue for us. So that was the original kind of inspiration for the business. Previously, I'd run a, an enterprise software startup. And prior to that, I spent seven years as an investment banker running running a short-term credit trading desk. So I understood sort of like, I understood the problem from the old world and the new world, right? So what I did is I tried to I tried to find financial services providers that would understand what we were trying to achieve in terms of unlocking payments that were trapped in the app store. Of course, no one understood what I was talking about because it's not the normal invoicing relationship. So it was a case of really using that old financial services knowledge and the the knowledge of you know being the app developer at the coalface trying to trying to fix this problem. So it was like a marriage of old worlds and, and new worlds that seemed uh, seemed sort of fairly obvious to me at the time. Yeah, I guess this is the best way to start off a new business. You're actually fixing a problem that you faced with with your previous enterprise and you know exactly what you're trying to solve. Let's switch to the Poland VC itself. Tell us about what you guys are doing. Draw a quick portrait of the company, please. Sure. Okay. So what we're essentially doing is helping app developers and publishers kind of bridge the bridge the gap of when they've been selling things within the within the app of the game. And when they're at, or, or indeed serving ads, and when they're actually paid out by the platforms. So, so typically, there is a you know an IAP revenue depending on whether you're Google, Apple, or both. It can be you know up to 45 days on Google, up to 60 plus days on Apple. And then for ad impressions, you can be serving the impressions. You know what they're worth, etc. But you can have a payment delay, anything from 
15 days from the end of the month up to 60 days from the end of the month. So really what we do as a business is we verify digitally all of these what we call receivables every day. It's anything that you have sold or displayed but not been paid for. Mm-hmm. And then we provide a line of credit that is linked to that amount that allows you to draw, allows you to borrow against those revenues. The primary use case is that people want to draw down these re- revenues and reinvest quickly back into user acquisition. So if you've figured out a formula where you are putting a dollar into acquisition and you're getting a dollar something out, then the payment delays that are, uh, you know, if, you, if you're waiting to get paid out by the app stores before you reinvest, that can really slow down the pace of your business. So what we're allowing is, you know, providing this line of credit to allow you to rapidly, and this can be, you know, this can be once a week, sometimes it can be twice a week, draw money against all of your revenues and take that money and reinvest it back into user acquisition that you know is, is likely to be profitable. So I think you mentioned at this point, you're not only supporting Google Play and Apple's App Store, but ad networks, right? Yeah, the, I mean, the reality of it, most people have got a, a mix of either IAP revenues or ad network revenues, and we're pretty agnostic between the two. So what we have is a bunch of different connections. I think we have 13 different connections into obviously the app stores, but also all of the leading ad, ad networks. And we pool all of that information into one, one number, which we call the borrowing base. And typically we'll allow you to borrow up to 95% of everything that we can see. So if we can verify a million dollars of receivables, we would lend you up to $950,000 against that. Now you don't need to take all the money. You can, you know, you have this completely elastic line of credit where you can take, you know, you may have access to $950,000, but you know, your user acquisition isn't working. You don't need to take the money. Therefore, you shouldn't take it. Or it may be that you need half a million bucks to pay off your Facebook credit facility or whatever. And, you know, in, in which case that's what you would take. Or in reality, a lot of the people we're working with, for as long as they're able to continually reinvest back into user acquisition, they want to keep their foot on the gas 100%. So they would be looking at taking as much down as possible because they know there's an opportunity cost of not taking that money and reinvesting it back into something that's profitable. So I guess as a business, we try and make it as easy as possible. We, you know, essentially what we found over the years of operating is that most developers and publishers we're working with, they just want to know what is available, how much can I draw and when can I get it? And so by providing this completely elastic, flexible line of credit, it gives them effectively a tool to manage their liquidity. And it also gives them a an alternative financing mechanic to going and raising venture capital. What we very often see is people say, hey, I've got this user acquisition formula that's really working. I'm going to go back to my VCs and raise more equity. And in reality, they're not looking at their receivables as an asset. And therefore, they're needlessly diluting themselves, going back and raising, raising more capital, diluting themselves when in fact they have a very quick and simple debt instrument that can be typically up and running in seven days, as opposed to you know, raising an equity round is going to take you three to six months. And yeah, and so, so you've got like this, this rapid on tap capital to reinvest quickly back into your business. All right, got it. So, you know, except probably tiny indie startups that consist of one or two folks, if such startups are still exist this, this day and age, any app business team has user acquisition and financial department. And because they have a different function, often it leads to misunderstanding. It probably it's not their fault. These folks are just you know, speaking different language, so, so to speak. Can you give us any insight into how both departments think, key metrics and so forth? 
Yeah, so it's interesting. And, you know, we've worked with, you know, 100 and something developers over the last few years and, and seen seen the way that, that people organize themselves. So, so typically the finances are done in a smaller company. They're typically done, you know, by the founders. Maybe it's the guys doing the UA themselves and therefore it's all kind of enclosed. But as a company typically grows, yeah, you, you segregate these roles into, you know, typically let's say a finance person or department, whatever. And then you've got a whole separate team of user acquisition as well. And one of the big observations we've found is they don't really take the time to understand each other's business and to talk each other's language. So perhaps it's better to actually point out where you see these guys really kind of coming together and taking the time and recognizing that really UA and finance are joined at the hip. That's where you see the much more kind of successful results, where there's a real deep understanding knowledge of, of, of the symbiosis between finance and user acquisition. And the reality of it is, in that paid user acquisition is such a key and integral part of, of app stores. You've got thousands of apps launching a day. Fine, you're going to get your occasional flappy bird that just, you know, just comes out of nowhere and goes to the moon. But in reality, for everyone else in the world, it's going to be about simple unit economics of acquisition, how much it costs me to acquire, when do I break even on my ad spend, and what's my ultimate journey to lifetime value? And what do those three kind of key metrics look like? And then from a financial point of view, Again, what we often see is, is the, this concept of the marketing budget or what we think, think of as the fallacy of the marketing budget. So mm -hmm. you might get a finance team saying to UA guys, your budget is 10,000, 50,000, 2 million, whatever it might be. This is your budget for the month. Please go off and spend this budget as well as optimally as you can. And you're incentivized for getting the highest paying high LTV users, say for that $100,000 budget that you're spending over, over the course of the month. And that's a very traditional way to run a business, right? So budgets are set, user acquisition teams or, mar or marketing teams are charged with spending that, the money and getting the best return from it. Now, the issue with that is that very often money is left on the table. So if I were in a, in a, in a traditional kind of offline analog marketing business, I spend all my money on billboards and magazine ads, that's great. I spend the money and I wait and see what comes in. But in the in the app economy, you've got this very direct uh, attribution mechanic between money in and uh, sort of money out and then money back in. And really, what we, you know, what we encourage people to do is to understand the metrics that that, that both parties are looking at and to really establish if there is a if the equation. I mean, the user acquisition is nothing more than an investment equation. It's how much money do you invest? When do you break even on the money? You know, when do you get the return on your money after that? Right and. And, and that's really, you know, if the UA teams were to think of it more like that and the finance teams were, you know, on the same page in terms of understanding, you know, the importance of ROAS break even, you know, modeling LTVs, et cetera, then they would be doing a much better job if they're collaborating together. Um, and so we came up with this concept of, again, this is just drawn from experience. You know, it's the, this question of like, you're not trying to say, can I spend my budget optimally? The question they should be asking together is, do we have a user acquisition machine? And if we do have this machine, i.e. we can put money in and get more money out the other end, how do mm -hmm. we collectively fund that machine? And that's second question. And then third is, you know, how do we know we can keep putting more and more money into this machine, provided we can find it? And then how do we know when the machine is running at full capacity, whether that's X number of users per day or you know, X users over a period of time, whatever, at some point, the machine is going to run out of puff. You're going to be, you know, just effectively, you're just not able to 
it, it operate because you're at full of us. So a different set of metrics, really, and a, a different way of, of looking at the problem. And so much of this is just drawn by, you know, a lack of understanding of each other's business, right? So very often you see finance teams that are hired from traditional finance roles uh, and, and they're not, you know, they've not sort of grown up in the in the app economy. They have to they have to learn all this stuff on on the job, and it's it, it's a very different set of parameters in the app economy than it would be to a normal kind of traditional, you know, offline finance role. So let's talk a bit more about the user acquisition machine. How do you describe it? Like, let's cover its details a little bit more. Yeah, and, and again, this is this is just thinking that's arisen from dealing with loads and loads of people and seeing you know seeing people you know, be super successful and grow, you know, 10, 20 times in a year just from, you know, really understanding their metrics and using financing correctly to people who are just flatlining and who are not sort of reading the signals, if you like, not reading the tea leaves of their user acquisition and their attribution metrics. So really the first question to ask, and this is basically, this is a joint question for UA teams and finance guys, sit down and, you know, take time to understand each other's world and parameters and, and, and issues. And by that, I mean, like, you know, very often the UA guys won't even know the payment terms and they won't they won't think how payment terms, for example, impact their mediation waterfalls or, you know, anything like that. It's just like I'm just focused on a P&L metric. I'm not thinking about cash flow. I'm just thinking about P&L. So I've got a very, very narrow set of parameters that I care about. And really, so if, if you can get the, the finance lead and the UA leads to sit down you know, take time and understand each other's problems and then figure out for the first thing you be, the first stage of the machine is basically like, do I have a machine? Do we have a formula that I can invest a dollar, I can make a positive return on that dollar? And if so, I need to understand, first of all, at what point do I break even on my ad spend? So that's my 100% ROAS that everyone's kind of rightly focused on. And then also, where does that lead? Where does that lead to as an LTV journey? So let's say I invest a dollar, I get my dollar back after 30 days, and after another 60 days, I've made another 30 or 40 cents return. So being able to model that is super, super important. And one of the things we we found as a business that a lot of people didn't really realize whether their UA was likely to be ROI positive or not. And that was a pretty fundamental thing. So we built some tools back in 2018. 17, we had more than 10,000 people using them. And we just recently refreshed them. So I think we can probably share the link or maybe we can talk about at at the end, but the financial forecaster tools that are that are there just up on our website as a free resource for people to to come in and play around with their own metrics. So it's a sandbox environment. You don't need to link up your data sources. We're not, you know, we're not trying to, you know, understand more about your business and you're willing to share, but really just like from some headline metrics around, you know, ARP DAO acquisition costs, particularly the retention curve, what we'll do is we will estimate and give you some kind of high level traffic light signals of this is what my journey to ROAS looks like. It's what my journey to LTV looks like. And it will show me whether I've got, you know, in principle, whether I've got positive unit economics. And if I can invest into user acquisition, is that likely to be positive or is it negative now? There's a really kind of binary outcome, right? So, I mean, save for the scenarios about, you know, organic uplift and all the rest of it. There's a really binary outcome. If you put a dollar into user acquisition and you make 90 cents back in LTV, ultimately you're, you're just on a hiding to nothing. You're just going to run out of money and you shouldn't do it at all. If, however, you can invest that dollar and you can turn it into a dollar, ten, dollar, twenty, dollar, fifty, 
then it's basically a case of modeling that out mathematically in terms of, you know, what are my potential outcomes here? And, and one of the things we do, first of all, is help people understand, you know, have I got positive unit economics? And then where does this go? And then if so, then to model out cash flow scenarios on the back of it. So what we do is we look at, you know, let's say you have a, you know, a dollar invested gets you a dollar sixty over a three month period in terms of full LTV recovery. Mm-hmm. So you're making essentially a 20% monthly return. You're turning that dollar into a dollar sixty over three months, your monthly returns 20%. Now, if you and what we'll model here is basically if you waited for the app stores or the ad networks to pay out, and then you took that money and then you reinvested it back into more cohorts. We're going to model those cash flows for you. Whereas also, if you took, if you drew against your receivables, your AR effectively, and you knew that that money was going to get reinvested positively, then we'll model the cash flow impacts of basically reinvesting that every week as opposed to say every 60 days into something that you know is going to be going to be ROI positive. So the thing that, you know, that first stage of the machine is basically this this stage of do I have an equation that allows me with some some ability to scale and with a high level of predictability or even a reasonably high level of predictability that I can invest I can invest money and I can make a positive return and if so then I want to model these scenarios out that terms of say what could it what could it end up as being so once you've established stage one like do I have a machine the the next stage of the conversation should be finance and UA sitting down together and saying, okay, tick, we have a machine and it's our collective duty to find out how we can finance this machine. So this is just basically a case of saying, okay, we've got a, we've got a winning formula here. What I'm looking to do is to put capital into this machine. So where do I find the capital? And rationally, you should start off with and say, right, where can I find the cheapest capital? And then work through more expensive, more expensive until basically it doesn't work anymore. And so the cheapest, the cheapest capital in this sense is if Facebook or Google or or your ad network, whoever it is, is prepared to offer you a, a line of credit, a credit line to buy user acquisition, you should use that first because it's essentially free money. So you should use that. You should max that out as far as possible. Now you may end up topping up your credit limit and so on. There's issues with ad network credit lines, but so mm-hmm. beyond that, then you look and see, have I any, do I have free cash flow? Do I have like a bunch of cash sitting in the bank earning me, you know, 0.1 of a percent, whatever on, on deposits, or do I have a game or another app that's throwing off a lot of free cash flow where the money's literally just sitting in the bank? Well, if I can take that money that's earning me half a, or a fraction of a percent per year, and I can invest it into my equation that's making me 20% per month, I should absolutely use that next. That's a different argument to say, hey, I've got a bunch of venture capital sitting there because the venture capital obviously being dilutive. There's a different cost profile associated to it. But if it's free cash flow, it's just sit- cash sitting on deposit, then you would be better to reinvest or to, to use that cash to, to generate than your return than to borrow. The next step behind that is using AR, accounts receivable. So this is, you know, and again, this is what we do as a business. So you've got this asset that you can borrow money against. So you might borrow money anywhere between, it might cost you, you know, one, one and a half, two percent, depending on the amounts involved for that month. So if I can say, you know, even if it costs me one and a half percent per month, then 
if I can borrow that one, it's, let's say I can make a 20% return, but I need to borrow the dollar. So I go and borrow the dollar and it costs me one and a half or 2% or whatever number is. And I can turn that into 20%, then I'm making an 18 or an 18 and a half percent profit per month. So the cost of the capital is actually very, very low compared to what it's allowing me to do in terms of reinvestment. So the trick here is to be very focused on profitability as opposed to, you know, source of capital or anything else. Just like you want to be able to do everything that's going to keep you driving towards maximizing your return. So from that point of view, then you work down what we call the capital stack. And it's basically a really simple, dispassionate way of starting with the cheapest, looking at the next most expensive, next most expensive, whatever, until you run out of options. And basically, you stop when it stops making sense. If you were to find out that your cost of capital was getting close to your return on capital, then you should stop doing it. It doesn't make sense. But if you're if you're borrowing, you're paying one and a half to make 15 or 2% to make 20, whatever, the profitability mm-hmm. is still really good from that trade. And it's just really training finance and UA guys to say, right, how are we going to fuel? How are we going to feed the beast and finance this? Obviously, you have to track everything on a daily basis. We, I mean, it, it kind of goes without saying in, in this world, but this is not a set and forget world. So obviously, these parameters are changing the whole time. But that's the essential gist. Figure out, do I have a machine? And then how do I feed the machine to generate the maximum uh, returns? Is there any significant difference if we're talking about app subscription model or it's basically working the same? That, um, to be honest, the monetization doesn't really matter. As long as you can model your unit economics mm-hmm. to figure out that, you know, and, and, you know, again, you can have crazy numbers in subscriptions. You can be paying $10 for an install that's going to monetize, you know, and it's going to monetize at 15 or 20 or 30, whatever. So as long as you can model and have a, you know, high degree of certainty that that's going to pay off, then the underlying assumptions are still the same. And one thing that you see is, and we've seen, you know, a reasonable number of times recently is people saying, I'm trying to get people to convert into a one year subscription. So I make the one month cost fairly high, but that's, you know, the, the one year cost fairly palatable after a seven day trial or whatever it may be. So essentially what they try and do is they set it so that they will acquire, you know, let's say it costs me, uh, cost me 10 bucks to acquire a user and it's the the LTV of that user from that seven day subscription is basically ten dollars mm-hmm. so you're effectively they're, they're saying I'm just I'm, I'm gonna do it all the way up so I can break even and then if anyone recovers uh, you know if anyone goes on to you know renew after one year whatever it may be all of that is gravy if they get the second year or the third year all of that is gravy in profit so setting the the bar in terms of subscription conversions whatever is an interesting one and you see people you know be fairly bullish about it knowing that you know provided there's decent retention people will go on to renew those subscriptions but look the the underlying concepts are just the same how much money in how much money out what degree of certainty over what degree of time and then you can model these numbers to make decisions all right you know i would like to touch on this other point which is Often we at App Industry tend to think about our business as something exceptional. And in some respects, it is true. But at the same time, basic economic laws do apply to app business, just another kind of business. So in one of the you know, fundamental key notions of economy is demand and supply. So let's just talk briefly about demand and supply for UI for a mobile app. 
So this is really the third part of the machine, right? This is the, let's say you figure out you've got a UA machine and you can put lots of capital into it. Ultimately, mm -hmm. you, you can't scale these things to the moon, right? There's a limit. There's a finite number of people on the planet. There's a finite number of people that are interested in, in the subject matter of what your app or your game's you know, target audience is. And the reality is everyone's going to be different, right? So what you're looking at is basically, if you think about you know, acquisition costs and LTVs, they're basically just like demand and supply curves in economics, right? So I studied a million years ago, I studied economics. And my, my very first lecture was just those very simple kind of, here's a demand curve, here's a supply curve. And, you know, you, you culminate that first lecture by, you know, understanding what, you know, what moves supply, what moves uh, demand and supply characteristics, and that your maximum profit is where your marginal cost equals your marginal revenue, right, where those two lines intersect. And this is exactly the same for apps, right? So what happens, as sure as death and taxes, what will happen over time, is that your acquisition costs will rise. And that's basically because you're in an auction system going after an ever decreasing pool of people. And you're having to hunt harder for the people who are interested in and going to hit the button to install your app or, or achieve that install action within the app. And then the other thing you can be sure of is that LTVs will crest over time. So you might start with something, if you have a super niche uh, audience, you go for your highest value pairs, your super fans first, and then you'll go out in, in concentric circles from there in terms of their propensity to pay. So what will happen at some stage is your demand and supply curve, aka your acquisition costs and your LTV, will intersect, at which point it doesn't make sense to buy because you know that beyond that point, you would be setting out to lose money. Now, Demand economics are very kind of theoretical, you know, in a way, sometimes, you know, perfect theory, which never, never really pans out on the ground. So would we advise anyone to, you know, to buy all the way up that curve right to the intersection point? Well, you know, probably not, because you may have some minimum internal target rate for return on capital. If you goose up your numbers and you get it a little bit, your LTV modeling wrong, you could be underwater. And also the other thing is these things reset. So you may only be able to do, you know, spend a certain amount of money every day because of people's consumption of media, et cetera. So, you know, just going and hammering it where you're just basically you're you're getting to that intersection point every day is probably not that sensible a strategy. But I really think that, and, and again, this is a finance and UA thing, is model these numbers, model out what the what the kind of the, the CPI curve might look like, how you know the gradient of, of these is going to be really important. It's tricky to do because everything's chopping around every day. There's seasonality, there's new games, there's all sorts of external factors. So it's not an easy exercise to do. But generally, the more granularity and the more visibility you have over effectively constructing your demand and supply curves, that will inform the UA team about buying strategy. And it will also inform the, the finance team about how are we going to find the capital to do this. Got it. Now, hypothetically, if you were a coach for finance and user acquisition teams in a company, and what would be your key message to both? I, I would think that you know, they should be literally joined at the hip, right? They are they are two parts of the same the same machine. It's very different to a normal you know, a normal, you know, offline business or you know, even e-commerce, well, maybe e-commerce a little bit different, but, you know, for most businesses, their finance functions are very discreet. They're, you know, sometimes just in a box, you might have an external remote bookkeeper just processing the numbers, whatever. 
And to those companies, they're really missing a trick. So this is a shared problem and one where you have to have a deep understanding of each other's business, or sorry, not even a deep understanding, but an appreciation of each other's business and two different angles on really the same thing. And to really focus in on this kind of joint problem of, you know, let's figure out, do we have it? And if so, it's our joint problem of how we're going to finance it. One of the things that we even see in, for example, in I mean, you think this is like a private company problem, but you know it's just as prevalent in public companies. So sometimes you see, you know, either very big privately held or public companies. And as the companies get bigger, the budgeting process gets harder and harder. So yep. we have seen, for example, you've seen like big publicly quoted gaming companies knowing they're ROI positive. So they keep spending, they might spend like $5 million in quarter one, $5 million in quarter two, and then it just goes to zero in quarter three. And everyone knows, I mean, Facebook and Google know that that money is being spent profitably. The UA teams know that money is being spent profitably, but it's a CFO decision. The budgets run out. Sorry, guys, there, there's, there's no more. And you know, as the certainly as the ad network, but also as, as the UA team, that money's being left on the table. It's just a financing issue that this cash has run out. Or the other thing is you see launch budgets, right? The classic launch budget. You've got a million dollars to launch this new game. You spend your million dollars, you see how you get on. And again, there's not a, enough inherent flexibility within the finance teams in those organizations to say, hey, look, I don't care if Q3 budget says this, we're leaving money on the table and we need to find a way to liberate it. So it's a problem for the smallest and also for the very biggest as well for, you know, for slightly different reasons. This is not just about cash flow. This is just about efficient use of, of capital, how to segregate the spend of ad investment and LTV recovery and how to sort of treat it differently depending on the stage the company's at. All right. Great. Now I've got a few quick questions to, to draw a better picture of who you are as a person. These are the questions that I'm asking every guest on this show. And here we go. Question number one. Are you iOS or Android person? I'm an iOS guy through and through. It's like, the are you a BMW guy or a Mercedes guy? And it's it's very hard to switch from one to the other. I'm not saying I, you know, I'm averse to it, but uh, you get very embedded in, in one or the other and provided, I mean, the, the pace of innovation is obviously great between them. I'm a fairly, fairly committed Apple guy. My whole family's on it, you know, for, for lots of reasons that the, the lock-in is working, is working fairly well, but the quality of the product's high too. So I'm okay with that. All right. Now, what was your first mobile phone? pre-smartphone, uh, pre-multi-touch uh, screen phones? 1993. I'm showing my age here. And, so, and the phone was, do you remember you the model? What? It's so old. I even tried to find the model and I couldn't find it. I was looking through Nokia, vintage Nokia museum stuff. It was early, right? It was 1993. I was a student at St. Andrews University in Scotland. I was running my own business, importing American college sweatshirts, and printing them up. And in my exuberance to, to be kind of free of the of the landline, I went out and I, I bought this Nokia phone, not actually thinking to check whether they had any cell towers in my area. And being in sort of, you know, not, not kind of remote, but kind of a little bit backwaters in Scotland, there wasn't even a freaking cell tower there. So I had to wait very patiently about six months before they erected a cell tower in St. Andrews before I could actually use it. But that's how kind of desperate I was to get to, to, to get mobile. So I'll, I'll never forget that. Yeah, and the year was 1993. Amazing. Uh, what is your favorite mobile app today? Um, that's a tough one. 
probably the most say, used, the uh, one you're using the most. Actually, not the one I use the most, but probably one I get, you know, I get sort of, I get value out of and, and pleasure out of. So I'm a big fan of Vivino, the wine tracking app. So any, and I've done this for, God, I can't remember when I first had it, but many, many years. So whenever I've, in, whenever I've had a, a, you know, a bottle of wine that's maybe been off grid, I've been on holiday or whatever, I'll always take a snap of that and I'll, I'll record it in my sort of uh, interesting wines I've enjoyed. And it could be like, you know, it could be like a, you know, something could be a bottle of plonk in Greece or, you know, certain nice wines in France, whatever. It, it doesn't really matter. It's just like a sort of a, like a wine history scrapbook. And, you know, the app just gets better and better, good recommendations. And, you know, just, um, you know, it's great. I, I get a lot of value from that. I use that every maybe couple of weeks. So it's not used a lot, but it's, uh, it's appreciated whenever I, whenever I pull it up. Got it. Now, when you're looking at a smartphone on your iPhone, what kind of technologies are you most excited about to actually materialize in this device? Hardware, software, anything that would make, you know, not a hype, not a, you know, fancy stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense, uh, but something that is tangible will make it more useful for you. I think on a practical level, you know, the one thing I always crave for is longer battery life, right? I'm from, you know, as we said, I'm from the the era of old Nokia's. It would just go on for days. My 6310, oh, yeah. you know, I could do five days on that without a recharge. And, and you know, and particularly with COVID in our house just now, chargers are always being, uh, you know, being pinched by the kids or, or whatever it may be. So battery life would be a big thing. The thing I, my sort of like my guilty, um, my guilty kind of request, and again, this is just me showing my vintage, is I got very excited where I was, a, a you know, back in the day, I used to love my BlackBerry and I've got kind of, I've got big hands. So I spend half the time correcting my typos when I'm typing on my iPhone. I do a lot of voice dictation, but if, if you're in somewhere, somewhere that you can't do that, I just spend a lot of time correcting it. So there's a little bit of the, the retro me that hankers after that old sort of BlackBerry style keyboard interface. Like I could, uh, you know, attach onto my, onto my iPhone. I think there, I, I remember I got excited about maybe 2010 or something, there were people that were actually copying the BlackBerry keyboard as a, as a hardware attachment, but they, they got shut down by, by BlackBerry pretty quickly, which I think was a real shame. So yeah, I spend like half my, you know, I spend what, a decent amount of my time typing it and then, you know, almost as much time correcting my, correcting my typos to make it legible. So it's a, that's a longstanding bugbear. Got it. All right. Now, before I let you go, just a final question. How can people get in touch with you and get more information about what you do? So there, there's a lot of information as well as obviously the tools and so on available, uh, the financial forecaster and LTV modeling tools available on pollen.vc. If any listeners want to reach out directly to me, you can always get me at uh, martin at pollen.vc is my email. All right. Awesome. That's actually it. Thanks for coming to our show and uh, thanks for your time, Martin. Thank you. Great. Thanks very much for having me on. Bye-bye. Cheers, and buddy. that was Martin McMillan, CEO and founder of at Poland VC. To listen to more episodes, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Just search for Business of Apps and you will find us easily. We release episodes on Mondays, so subscribe and you'll be able to get new episodes on your smartphone, tablet, or computer as soon as we release them. And please, don't forget to leave us a review and comment on iTunes. It is highly appreciated. And all episodes will also be available on businessofapps.com. Thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Business of Apps podcast. 
For more, head on over to businessofapps.com.